Hello, and welcome to a new podcast from Ampersand Speech. So What Do You Do is a podcast that will take you on a journey into the life of someone else, the highs and lows of their job, and any tips and advice they have on how to break into the industry or move across. It's not just the highlights, though. There will be some stories of stumbles and mess-ups in here too. Don't worry. Think of it as a bite-size for careers. Throughout this 10-episode series, I'll be asking questions of some of the leading figures in journalism, film, TV, art, culture, and more. Finding out what makes them tick, why they've decided to work in the industry they do, and what advice they would give to someone like you. Myself, growing up, I never had a clear ambition of what I wanted to do or work as. I picked the world of TV production after graduating from uni with a degree in oceanography that I knew I'd never want to continue down the scientific research route of, but wanted to use in a constructive way. But what I was missing were real-life stories of some people working in the jobs I'd always been curious about. Actors, filmmakers, ballet dancers. Just those people that you think, what happens in your typical working day? What does it involve? What world are you living and working in that I could maybe be a part of someday? Other than being a ballet dancer, my long tree-like limbs have never been coordinated enough for the grace of ballet. I guess that curiosity has just stayed with me ever since. So, let's get started. This week, we're talking to ABC News' foreign correspondent, James Longman. Covering everything from the Arab Spring to the 2015 migrant crisis, Buckingham Palace to terrorist attacks across Europe, James's face is a mainstay of international news. Growing up in West London in the late 80s, James went on to schools in Knightsbridge and then a secondary school in West Sussex. At university, he studied Arabic at London's School of Oriental and African Studies, before heading to LSE to complete a Master's in Comparative Politics. He got his break at the BBC after his reporting inside Syria in 2012, and he then went on to work on the renowned journalism-focused programme Victoria Derbyshire, amongst others. His time at the BBC also included stints on CBBC's Newsround and as a news reporter before leaving in 2017 to take up the job he's currently in at ABC News as a foreign correspondent. Fluent in both Arabic and French, James's work has truly taken him around the world. He has broken stories and news in over 40 countries, alongside regularly contributing to high-profile shows like Good Morning America, World News Tonight and Nightline. From covering the LGBT crackdowns in Chechnya to royal weddings and funerals, to presenting from the top of a glacier in Antarctica and being the first US network reporter on the scene in Thailand when the football team went missing back in 2018, there doesn't seem to be a breaking story James isn't across. It's a great privilege to have you on the podcast with us today. James Longman, welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be here. First off, cast your mind back to you at 16. You were just finishing year 11. Um, and for people listening who aren't in the UK, year 11 is the last year of compulsory education in the UK. Did you have a career in mind? Where did you want to end up? It was somewhere between law and acting. That's what I wanted to do. I wasn't sure. It was some kind of performance, I think. I was interested in law. I, th I thought it sounded clever and I could talk and I could have an argument with people and I think that probably suited me when I was 16. And then I was I was really into the theatre. So there was an amazing acting programme at my school and I was very lucky to do that. So year in, year out, we were doing these big productions and I was thinking, well, I might go on and be an actor. So that was what it was about. Mo mostly also because I was entirely enumerate. I mean, I was so bad at maths, it was unreal. I was the only boy in my year who was in the top set for English and the bottom set for maths, and that had never happened before. They had to reorganise the timetable just for me because I was that ridiculously bad. I just knew that it wasn't going to be anything remotely business-related or anything scientific. Um, I was in a class in math with people for whom English probably wasn't even their third language. I don't know. I mean, it was so bad. So my options were pretty limited and it was basically anything that would involve me talking for a living. I think that was probably what I knew I was going to go and do. But I think back then we were kind of pushed to do things that are more academic. 
there was never really an idea of doing anything that was vocational or that you would enjoy. It was just things that you might be good at. And there's a difference between things you might be good at and things you enjoy. And so, yeah, journalism really wasn't in my mind at all. From that sort of thought at year 11, how did you then decide um, on a bachelor's in Arabic? That's, that's almost a completely different tangent. Well, I was originally going to go and do English at, at university, uh, just because I did love doing English. I did a theatre at A-level as well, and it was all basically reading plays, which I loved. And then I got to choosing a degree, and my mother was basically like, I didn't spend all this money in education for you to go and become an actor and choose a degree that you actually would be useful to you. English is not useful, but uh, I'm being a bit facetious. But basically, I wanted to go and do something I liked, and English was obvious. And then when it came to it, I actually went away, and I lived in China for a year, and I thought, actually, what I really want to do is travel. What I really want to do is go and live in another country, enjoy being there. And I thought, well, what country do I want to live in? And it was Egypt. That was the country I was fixated on because I was raised between London and Cairo. My mom was originally part Lebanese. I spent my childhood hearing Arabic in the house. And I just knew that I wanted to be in Egypt because a lot of our family had ended up in Egypt. I spent most Easter's there and it was just a big part of my life. So I thought, right, what degree do I have to do Arabic that's the process of elimination not any real academic interest in Arabic but then I did I went and did a degree in Arabic finding it very hard because it's all about grammar and grammar's maths so I was terrified but it was good in the end and I got to spend a year in Syria and, and then when it came to choosing the year that you went abroad by that stage I had spent my summers in Syria I thought to myself well I know Egypt actually what I want to do is Lebanon because that's where my family's originally from where can I go well I'll go to Damascus because you can just drive to Beirut really easily so then my love affair with Syria began and then when it came to choosing in the third year uh, a country to go and live in it was Damascus and how did you how did you sort of go about getting that break it was your first break with newspapers writing writing when you were out there I wrote to some news desks and I just went, hi, I, I'm here and I could write to you about what's happening. And I wrote to the Times, I remember, and the Telegraph, the Guardian. I just wrote to all the newspapers, really. And it was the Times that got back to me, actually, quickest. And the first piece I did was for them. And um, I remember having absolutely no idea what I was doing. I mean, it was so... There was a level of foolishness. And I think the Arab Spring, as we now know it, Yemen... Egypt, Algeria, a lot of these countries kind of were places where lots of young wannabe journalists went and kind of cut their teeth. It was very dangerous looking back now. Uh, I wouldn't have done it in any other country. I only did it in Syria because I knew the people I was being put in touch with. Um, and so, yeah, I just wrote and I said, I'm here. I could write for you. And they said, yeah, please do. Um, and then I would go out and I'd stand on rooftops with these activists who would look after me only really either at, in, at dusk or at night time. Obviously, I'm not Syrian, so I would stick out like a sore thumb and watch the protests go past and all the, you know, the people want the fall of the regime and all that kind of stuff and the flat Syrian flags and the peace signs. And and then, yeah, that was that. was that, And that was in the March, uh, April. Um, I did it and then I came back and then I went back again. And then it started getting, by the October, it was getting a bit dangerous. By by the end of 2011, there had, it was, it had, well, earlier than that, really, but I was starting to see it becoming an armed opposition and on my own without any insurance, you know, without any anyone to vouch for me. I thought by, by the end of 2011, it was probably best to kind of come back. And I got it. I had had a job at Sky while I was doing my master's kind of making coffee and stuff on the weekend politics shows it was then with Demet Murnahan and then I asked if I came back and I said well I know a little bit about Syria do you want me to help you out with your Syria coverage and they said yeah so I would kind of help them make maps and all the graphics if you remember at the time there was a great emphasis on the geography of Syria as well and where the regime was and I would help them with that because really no one had any idea about Syria. That was the thing. You know, most people probably couldn't put Syria on a map before 2011 to their great disappointment because it is one of the most extraordinary countries on earth. But people just didn't know very much about it. I remember when I lived there, I had a Western Union put through for some cash and I called up and it wasn't there. And I called the number and this woman answered and I said, I'm in Syria. And she goes, oh, we've sent us to Sierra Leone, you know, not really registering what it was or where it was. So then they needed this kid who really knew nothing about journalism, who might be able to put them in touch with a few people in the country. And in the end, that was what I was able to do. And Stuart Ramsey was going in and out of Syria at the time. 
and I was basically fixing for Sky, helping him get in. Um, yeah, and that's how it all kind of began. Do you think, looking back at it now, you would you would make the same decision to go out there as it was so dangerous? Um, no, but I think when you're 22, 23, you make decisions that you wouldn't make when you're 34. But I, I, was, I like to think that I was being calculating to some degree. I wasn't just totally, totally moronic. I mean, I did speak pretty good Arabic. Because what the different groups would do is that they would... You'd go because the, the the activist networks at the time were very kind of regional. They were very basically in each town had its kind of rebels. But I said to myself, well, if I'm going from like for example, I was in a town called Madaya. If I was going to go to Zabadani, which is next door, or if I was going to go to Raqqa, which is a bit further away, or um, any of the other towns, I would make sure that one person would always be with me from my original starting position. So I'd always have a person to vouch for me. Uh, I was trying to be conscious about my security. I had got it into my head that if I wrote an article, and this is how I got information back to London, I, I thought that if I wrote an article and I would mention Assad's name in a piece on an email, for instance, and I would send it, then the server would pick that up and then I would be arrested. But what, what I did instead was save the article to my draft box and then London would have the password details for my email and then be able to access the drafts and say like that. I've since been told that that's entirely ridiculous and complete rubbish and any and Syrian security would have been able to see anyway. But at the time, I was trying to do what I could to kind of stay safe. And um, it, it by and large, it, it worked um, until... I got a bit of a rude awakening. I was coming back south. There's basically one road that, as there was then from Damascus to the northern cities. And I was going back from having witnessed some of the most restive protest movements in Rastan, which is, at the time, again, it was a Sunni town which was seemed to be joining the opposition, which people didn't think would, they would do, because it, there was a very famous general from the town who people wondered if he was going to defect. Anyway, point is, I was leaving this town, coming back, and along the road, it's a desert road, and there were a series of checkpoints. And I was with, again, this activist contact, who also happened to be uh, a university lecturer. And academics in Syria are given a great deal of respect. So going through a government checkpoint, and if you have a, if you have a university ID, they, they kind of dock their head and then you pass. Like, they don't... At the time, they, didn't, they weren't seen to be a threat and there was a great deal of respect given to them. So it was like a secret weapon to be able to get through checkpoints if you're with this guy who was an academic. Most of the checkpoints were manned by kind of young guys, conscripts. They didn't have a clue anyway. So we go through one checkpoint, it's all okay. Checkpoint two, checkpoint three, it's all okay. But we come to the last checkpoint and I feel the air in the car shift because, and it's only the two of us, the guy I'm with realizes that at the checkpoint he can see an officer and it's worrying when there's an officer because officers use their brains in a way that some of the conscripted soldiers don't and obviously me sitting in the car I'm not meant to be there they know that there's been protests in the north I'm quote-unquote a student in Syria I should really be in Damascus it wasn't good anyway we, we pull up he senses something's wrong and he asks the guy to come inside and I'm sitting in this car it's kind of sweltering hot I'm on my own the sentry has been posted at the, at the car and on my phone and on my laptop underneath my seat are there's lots of footage lots of pictures uh you know interviews of people all pretty rudimentary because again i didn't really know i was trying to film and then sell footage to american broadcasts at the time and i was really bad at it but anyway the, the footage had been had been filmed so i take my phone from under my lap and i was just looking forward but slowly going through my picture roll on my phone and deleting picture after picture after picture because I was just really scared. And um, 20 minutes passed and the guy comes back and sits in the car. He doesn't say anything. And then the maid, the officer comes back, walks very slowly around. He's an old man. He leans his big sweaty head inside the window. And then he just kisses me sort of slowly on the forehead like this, which is a kind of a a nice Arab greeting but actually what it is is it's him saying I know full well who you are and on this occasion it's not worth my time making a big deal out of it but you could be in a lot of trouble 
Anyway, he taps his he taps his hand on the car with signals to move forward. So we move forward and we we're driving and that we're sitting in silence. And he just looks at me and goes, "You're leaving Syria now." And um, that night, I went and I found a uh, they had a an apartment in Damascus, which was a safe house of sorts. And I spent the whole night lying there alone in this apartment, staring at the ceiling, like wondering if I was going to get the Secret Service knocking on my door. And then I called a cousin and the next day I was out, I was in Lebanon. And I remember an aunt came to get me from the bus stop because you get these taxis back and forth. And she was so angry. She was like, you should not be risking your life, you know, treating me like a child as I was. I, you know. So that was a bit of a wake up call. So look, and but that isn't anything close to the difficulties that a lot of people have had in Syria. And of course, a lot of young men and women my age at the time were being taken. And we've still lost a couple of young journalists still now their their whereabouts are unknown and, and they were all there at the same time it was all that period that people were being taken by the syrian regime and then basically sold to terrorist groups how does that how does that make you sort of feel does that make you feel lucky or does that make you feel like it could just it could have been you so easily yeah it does make me feel very lucky i mean yeah it could have been i mean but it wasn't and i was i didn't push my luck I, and you know i mean i didn't I wasn't there for very long. I was in and out. I was trying not to spend too long there. Um, I was also conscious that, and I'm still conscious of this now, for the next few years, we witnessed as more and more young people tried to go to Syria to work. And what they were doing, some of them were working for their own blogs or Twitter. And you're like, if you haven't got a commission from a reputable news organization who's going to not only vouch for your safety, but promise to publish something which is meaningful for the people who are risking their lives to help you, then you shouldn't be there. And I didn't want to push my... I mean, I was getting commissions. I was writing. I did for The Telegraph and The Times. But then after that, I was like, well, I'm not going to ask these people to risk their lives just so I can see how much journalism I could do. Um, I cared very deeply about it, but it, I wasn't being looked after by anyone, and it was very dangerous for the people helping me to be doing that. So there was a level of responsibility you had to take. I mean, I spoke to a lot of people before I went, and I was lucky I knew Dominic Waghorn, who's now at Sky, at Sky at the time. And he said, just remember, every single human being you come into contact with in Syria, you're putting in danger. So don't do it too much, basically. <laughs> like, do what you need, but don't do it, you know? And so that's always stayed with me, that advice. And, and actually, like about six months ago, I remember there's this kid who follows me on Instagram and... I know he's from Syria and he likes my pictures and all this stuff. And then he got he gets relocated and he's I now see he's living in Europe. And I saw he was in Europe and I messaged him. I said, oh, it's nice to see that you're in. And he goes, do you remember me? We met on the bus to Aleppo. And I said, yeah, of course. Because this kid had come up to me when I was on my way north again on a trip I shouldn't have been on. And he said, yeah, the day that you were on the bus, you were being followed. And my I had to leave Syria after I met you. And I and I this whole this kid's whole life has changed because of the twenty minute and he was like, and I felt awful and he said no 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 I mean I, I escaped Syria I wanted to get out um, but it became uh, unsafe for me and my family so I had to go and you and you didn't know on the day that you were being followed wow so I mean wow yeah it was a tricky time <laughs> and so when you were working for when you were working for Sky as sort of a, a fixer of sorts back in was that back in London. Yes, so I had I had arranged my masters uh, to only go in for lectures twice a week, so it would leave me three days of the week where I could work, and then I also worked on the weekends. So I did uh, the Murnahan show. I used to like print off newspapers and go and get croissants and things for old men and women doing their politics. And then in the week, I would they eventually I got like a, some shifts on the overnight online, so I'd write articles on anything that came in. I remember I was on duty when Whitney Houston died, and um, I was very sad about it. And uh, like the huge gay I am, started crying. And my editor said to me, um, James, I just need 500 words. It's breaking strap. So we just need 500 words on on Whitney dying. I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and he comes up to me half an hour later. He, was, he looks over my shoulder. He's done. He's like, you've done a thousand words. What is wrong with you? I just, I'm there on the phone going, oh my God, I just can't. Just, I just don't know if I can. Writing and writing and writing. He was like, okay, just what we wanted just a news story. Anyway, yeah. So no, I did, I did that for a little while. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I was basically online for, for 
for digital, for online as it was then, until I then gave a talk alongside some other young people who'd been to the Middle East. It was called Young Journalists in the Arab Spring or something. Ruth Sherlock, who I think now is at PBS, Tom Finn, and then Portia Walker, who's since left journalism. But we had all been to these kind of... She'd been. I think Ruth had been in Libya, Tom had been in Yemen, Portia, I think, had been in Libya. And the Paul Wood from the BBC was there that night and then came up to me afterwards because he was very keen on getting into Syria and was, they were finding it very difficult. He said, I think you should meet my boss because we need people who know about Syria. So I did. And then the BBC offered me a job because, like, I, like Sky, they didn't know much about Syria at the time. It goes without saying that many of us will never be caught in the middle of a war zone. What does it feel like to be in one, let alone sort of reporting from it? There's an adrenaline rush. I have. I can't deny that you feel it's not about the danger. It's about being somewhere where something very consequential is happening. It, that's what it. That's what it's really about for me. You feel history is being made in the place you're in, if not world history then at least this nation's history or this town's or this place's history, it feels things have come to a head for whatever reason and you're there to witness that breaking point. And that's quite a that's quite a thing. And then when you're in a place where it really is majorly consequential for the world, that is, that's a, like an extra level. And, you know, I do this thing sometimes with my boyfriend where, well, I do it in most appointments. I'll... um. I'll take it. It sounds very cheesy. I apologize for this. This is because I'm working at American Network. You see, I've become too sentimental. I take a picture of the moon wherever I am, and he will take a picture of the moon. And so we'll feel like we're under the same moon, right? So whether I'm like lying on some destitute beach in Indonesia or something, and he's where it's just been wiped away by a tsunami or something, and he's at home. He look. He goes out into the garden, takes a picture of the moon, and it's the same moon. And sometimes, when you're in a in a place like Syria or like when we were in Baghouz at the fall of ISIS, you do look up and you think, "There's one moon. Everyone's looking at that moon, but I'm looking at it from here." And there are billions of other people on the world in the world looking at the same moon, but I'm the only one looking at it from here. And that feels very weird, but also in a good way. And I think, um, yeah, that's how it feels. That's different. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's how it feels. No, no, no. And I think I think the um, the taking pictures of a moon thing. I think that's quite sweet in a way that it can almost does it sort of ground you in in the way that it is the same moon, even though we're you're miles apart. It sort of is that does that keep you sort of together in a way when you're not feel closer? Yeah, you definitely feel closer. Yeah, because you realise we're all tiny nothings, right? So um, that's why we do it. And in terms of, yeah, your work on um, the Victoria Derbyshire program included a piece on your father's struggle with mental health um, and your own experiences in suffering. How do you cope with the sort of the pressure of the pressure cooker of news and sort of keeping your mental health in a good in a good space? I suppose everyone's mental health is as unique as they are. So my response to work is actually that i i really like it it's good for my mental health it's not that i don't i don't i often don't feel overwhelmed by it i actually it, it helps me um now up to a point obviously i do get moments where i've just had too much like anyone would when you haven't stopped working for weeks on end and you haven't really slept because it's a u.s time zone or whatever but um i find that working is actually very very helpful what what my what what sadness does for me is make me feel useless there's a sense of worthlessness, which mental health in most people, depression anyway, is the thing that most people will characterize depression as, as being they have lost their own value. So working is great because it gives you value. It gives you meaning and worth. And it shouldn't be where all your worth is derived. Obviously, that would be very, very detrimental. But the working for me is the way it help, is, is what helps. Being in the, being in the constant sort of 24-hour, 24-7 um, sort of state of play and news. How do you how do you switch off, or are you just somebody who is perpetually on, just always on whenever you wake up, just straight on Twitter and seeing seeing what's happening? I'm not a news junkie. I wish I were, but I'm really not. I don't actually care too much about all the news, <laughs> and that makes me sound horrible. And you meet some people who who are kind of constantly like, "Oh, have you just seen this?" I mean, I'm just not. It doesn't 
light my fire. There are different kinds of journalists. I remember I worked with a, uh, a colleague at the BBC, and she was known as being a news hound. Like it doesn't, it didn't matter what the story was. She wanted to know all about it, and she crucially wanted to be there first. Now, I've never really been motivated by that. I, I don't love if we've got our opposition at ABC is NBC. So I'm not, I don't love if I want to be in a place and I see that they're there. It rarely happens because ABC is very good about deploying as quickly as possible. But that's kind of annoying because that's just, I'm a bit competitive. But but in terms of like loving the news, I, I, I don't. And actually that's really helpful because Alex reads the news way more than I do. He tells me what's <laughs> happening. I'm more of an issue orientated person. There are parts of the world and there are issues and kind of, subjects that i care about but every story doesn't light my fire you know so that's what's helpful i can switch off and i do that's good um what do you so what do you love most about the job oh well the people i think the when you do this job if you don't like meeting new people then you can't do it and um i absolutely love finding stuff out about other human beings who've done amazing things i mean what i love actually is is getting the opportunity to show people and I'm not on some sort of great, you know, mission to change the world, but I do love the opportunity to show people at home that we're all really basically the same and to try to bring everyone a lot closer to bring everyone's perspectives closer and their expectations of themselves and other people in you know readjust them and make people realize if you are a kurdish mother of 10 who's lost their husband in the war with turkey in northern syria or if you are a pilates instructor in california there is you have so much in common about all the things that you want in life about having success and having love and having a family around you and having shelter and it's just there are totally shareable principles that we all have in common and that's what i love i love trying to show people that and i really love the opportunity to meet these other people who help me with my own perspectives about the world so that's what i love about the job and what do you not enjoy about the job some of the some of some of these stories that we cover are just necessary and I, i don't love that i don't love doing a foreign story from london when it's just a bit of cctv that's not my idea of foreign reporting um, I don't love the hours, but I appreciate that they exist and that's kind of how it has to work. I think I have a bit of a weird, I wouldn't call it like a, an unnatural or, you know, a, a bad relationship with work, but I don't see a problem in answering my phone at, at midnight for work or like being on my phone on a Saturday or a Sunday. Um, but I don't like it. I don't like having to be with this phone like glued to my hand and I'm trying really hard to because it gets you in bad habits right I check my email and then I'll check Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and then I'm back round on the loop of sin constantly going round and round <laughs> I hate and um, and I have to remind myself but it's it's hard so that's probably what I don't like maybe you could maybe you could get a work phone that is a Nokia 3310 that only only accepts and sort of incoming and outgoing calls and that's it <laughs> so if they need to get you they or do they usually text i mean is i'm imagining it's a call from the news desk saying you need to get your stuff and get on this plane it's a call yeah but trouble is with me is i don't i don't like having things in my pocket so i wouldn't want to have two phones uh, i'll just get a page of- yeah that only your bosses know the number to so you could have it you can have it on you sort of when you need to and you'd be alerted straight away and then you wouldn't have that yeah the sort of doom scrolling but the problem with my work is that, like, if I wasn't a journalist, I probably wouldn't have Twitter. I certainly wouldn't have Instagram. But I do because I need it. And because the lines are, are blurred so much between what's work and what's personal. You know, in our world these days, if you're if you're on television news, you, people kind of want to know what you're doing outside of news, the behind the scenes stuff, sharing in, stuff with Alex. Whether you like it or not, it's part of your uh worth as a professional and there's that horrible word which i'll only use once and after having covered prince philip's funeral i i hate the idea of even using it because he would have hated it um your brand it's so bad isn't it i'll say it again but that's what you have to be conscious of and it's an unfortunate reality 
whether you want to play the game or not play the game. But the thing is, if you don't want to play the game, then you will not have a career. It's as simple as that, I'm afraid. So it's, it's, it's a really, really fine balancing act because, it, because I didn't become a journalist for everything I do to be about me. And yet social media is all about you. And you know that a post will only do well when you're in it versus when you're not in it. You know what I mean? But if my job is to tell as many people as possible about something, then surely it's important that I have, I'm able to communicate to as many people as possible. Well, it's a, yeah, it's like a very unique sort of position because it is, it is your, I mean, brand. It is, it is like you're, you have to be, you have to be visible and you have to be, because otherwise, otherwise people might start to, I don't know, forget that you are, you are the correspondent you are. So it is, yeah, I can see that it's, it could almost be a difficult thing to sort of switch off. So, you know, in modern television network news these days, um, and it's the same in Britain as it is in the United States, you know, you are selling your, yourself to your programs. You, I want Good Morning America. I want World News. I want them to think of me when they want to deploy. And so you need a presence in order for them to feel that way. You know what I mean? Um, mm. You are as good as your last piece, but are you, at the same time, you're as good as all the things that you're sharing outside of the traditional news world and editors these days particularly of kind of linear broadcast programming are very conscious of having other audiences that aren't tuning into the television so if you have a presence online that's what they care about so but it's hard and it and it gets you down and you're constantly comparing yourself to other people and you've got all the problems that people who deal with mental health issues because of social media all the obvious ones that everyone talks about goes through your head when you're a news person as well. But it's a necessary, I'm afraid, here's another horrid phrase for you, it's a necessary evil. Do you have like a travel bag by by the front door sort of hidden away somewhere? If so, what is in it? Um, what, what, what do you not leave the house without? Yes, I do. Um, I've always got, uh, I've got a little bag and I was, I'm always on the hunt for a really good toiletry bag from an aeroplane because they work really well to put your electronics in. Currently, top spot goes to the El Al travel bag. Very, it's a very good travel bag. So I've got one of those little things and it's got like adapters and chargers and batteries. So that's in there. Uh, my iPad, uh, I've always got my um, recording kit, uh, which comes in this little pouch. Uh, and I've always got um, thermals. Uh, I don't go anywhere without thermals because chances are you'll be cold because you're if I'm going I cover everything that happens outside of the United States and generally means that means that I'm going east which means that it's going to go further and further into the night as I'm broadcasting for our evening news in America so I'm going to be cold and I've always so I've all got thermals and I get cold very easily and uh, my makeup so those are the things that I always travel and obviously my pants um, and you've you presented programs um, on the LGBT purge that was going on in Chechnya, um, including a particularly I was watching it back the other day, um, a nail biting reveal that you sort of came out to a particularly sort of um, hardline police chief after hearing the way that LGBT people have were sort of actively being hunted in Chechnya. Did, when did you when did you decide to come out at work? And was that was that something that you ever thought to sort of hold back, hold back, or were you just thinking it's just another part of me? It's tough. I think that, well, so I told the first person I told I was gay, I was 16. And then it took me eight years to then tell my mother in an email. Um, and then, but I, so I remember I got to university. So I went to an all boys boarding school, which was quite kind of, you know, the word gay is, you know, an insult. So I was very high school. It was the best 10 years of my life, but I wasn't prepared to tell people that I was gay, even though probably they knew. I'm still very close with a lot of the boys that I was at school with and, you know, but it just wasn't something I was able to say then. It's more about yourself. I mean, anyone who's gay will tell you. I mean, it's an issue around your own acceptance. It's not really about other people. So I wasn't really in a place where I could do that until I was in my 20s. And then I got to university and I remember thinking, right, today's the day, first day of uni, going to tell people. And I didn't. I spent a couple of, I spent at least three years at university in the closet. It didn't help that I was spending a lot of time in the Middle East. I mean, because, you know, you're not exactly going to turn up in Syria and be like, you know, show me the gay bar maybe put me back a little bit and then I I think I was by, by the time I was doing my I was about 25 and I was like okay I'm gonna have to maybe be okay with telling people and and it wasn't really like you know I wouldn't go and tap people on the shoulder and be like hey I don't know who you are but I'm you should know that I'm gay if it came up I would say I don't have a boyfriend or I'm not seeing anyone or whatever 
But it really was, it coincided with a bit of a, I had a bit of a, I had a, well, I wouldn't call it a breakdown, but I certainly had a really hard time when I was 26, 27. I was feeling a horrible, I had a panic attack at work and I was just not in a good place. And it was really, really linked to not having told people really who I was. And that was all kind of soaked up in it. So after that, I just thought I've really got to pull my finger out and own up. So I did. Mm. Um, and then in Chechnya, it wasn't, I wasn't like, there was no plan. I cared a lot about the story, obviously, as a gay person, but I, and I knew that there would be some power in going to Chechnya as a gay man for the audience. Mm. But I, but only inferred it, there was never going to be a moment in that program where I was going to go, Hey, I'm gay. But we were in the prison and it felt like a moment that I could. I, I can't really explain it. Like I, I, I had absolutely no intention of doing it because Chechnya is fucking terrifying. I mean, as a place, these guys are huge. It's like something out of a, like a nightmare. You've got these guys who've got arms the size of my torso, eight foot, straddling the the you know the police chief. There are like ten more of them behind us. Like I wasn't, and I and I know what they do to people. But in that moment, in that prison cell we knew after having spent the day with him that he wasn't going to do anything to us because he was happy to have us in Chechnya because in his mind we were helping him restore Chechnya's image on the international stage so I, I sort of mentioned it to the producer he didn't speak any English so I asked him in English my producer I was like does do you think it's okay to say and he goes I think you're safe I think we can go for it so in that moment I'm, I did it because we were in a prison cell which had held gay people and I thought there was some power in mm. doing it but I was certainly a bit worried for the next 24 hours until we left Chechnya. I mean, I mean, some of the things that they're doing and just sort of saying that there are LGBT free zones, it's just horrific. Well, he, they say that there are no gay people in Chechnya, that it's impossible to be mm. Chechen and gay. Uh, so, yeah, it's a very difficult place to, to argue with that, I suppose. And now for something lighter. What would you what would you say to young young people who would who are wanting to carve out an, a career in media themselves? What's the most important lesson that you've learned? Just uh, listen, listen to people who've been doing it longer than you have. Um, there, there's a tendency in journalism at the moment, and and I would say this carefully, but to only listen to certain young voices because somehow they've not been listened to enough so far. And that's true. And we should be empowering young people to have a voice and say what they think and all that. But there is immense experience and talent in journalists who've been doing it for a long time. And for me, my greatest, the only I've had, there are two reasons why I've had any, any success in my career. The first, in no particular order, the first was when I joined ABC, the producer that was assigned to me to help me out for my first week. It's like a make or break week. ABC does this thing where it's like sink or swim. If they don't like you on the shows, then you're out. Like it's quite cutthroat, but it's, it's hard. They don't put any old person on television. If they don't like you, even if they've hired you, you won't go on and then they'll end your contract. Like that's how, that's how, it's not just ABC, network news works like that. They assigned this producer to me who was and is still a very close friend, just amazing. You know, had been doing it for four, he's just, I think he's just had 35 years at ABC been to every country, seen everything, done everything. And it was up to me to have this guy telling me what was right and what was wrong. And just to listen to every single thing he said and not argue, not suggest something different, not say that, oh, because he's old, he doesn't know. Not be arrogant about it. Just say, yes, I'll do what you say. And that was the reason why I've had success at ABC. And before that, I worked, the first job I got at the BBC, I went into the World Affairs Unit as a producer. Absolutely no idea what I was doing. To be the kind of a researcher producer, um, general dog's body at the World Affairs Unit, which had at the time and still does all of the greatest names in, in BBC foreign news reporting. Uh, John Simpson, obviously the World Affairs editor. I got to work with Jeremy Bowen, Bridget Kendall, James Robbins, uh, Jonathan Marcus, uh, and then the list just goes on and on and on. Some of the most talented Caroline Hawley, brilliant, brilliant reporters who've done everything. And I was able to sit there and just drink it all in. And so my advice for people 
and it might sound like I'm now become an old person, but is to listen to how they do it because it is a masterclass. And that, yeah, that would be what I, that was what I would say. And what do you think, what do you think are the most important qualities for somebody um, to be successful in sort of in broadcasts would be as a, as a correspondent? I think because you're dealing with people, I think it's the same qualities that you require to be a good human being. You need to be kind. You need to be compassionate. You need to listen. Um, people are not stupid. They smell authenticity. They know if you're faking it. So for me, and you can interview lots of people, I'm sure, who I've come across in my life. He'll probably tell you that I'm horrible. But I've tried very hard to be kind to people at every stage because it's it's a tiny industry and it's just not worth your while to be awful to people so i would say kindness because it just it helps you with your work with your colleagues it helps you with talking to human beings who have who are in by and large having probably the worst day of their life there's no real other reason why you would be having a conversation with them so just be kind it just it goes it sounds so stupid and simple and again that's me being sentimental but it just it does help it just helps you and it helps you feel better about your own work because there's a there's a level of guilt that all journalists go through because my own professional success relies on something going very badly for someone else and so if you can try and be the person who that individual on that worst day in their life, if you could be kind to them in that moment, that's the transaction, right? They've given you something and you've got to give them. And the thing that you give them is kindness because they need it. And to, to use people in this world is, uh, and I've seen it happen a lot is, is, um, is, is horrible and it gives everybody a bad name. No, I think, I think a lot can be said about, um, empathy and kindness. Just generally, as humans, let alone if you're, yeah, if you're, if you're, yeah, fi- figuring out what somebody's story is. The media industry has a has a reputation in the UK, at least, of being a slightly old boys' club with sort of positions of power being filled by white men from top universities. Um, do you think that still rings true today, or do you think that description uh, is a bit outdated? And what do you think the the sort of similarities and differences are between the UK and the US? Look, it's obviously still true um, because I think probably every industry is still dominated by relatively privileged people. I mean, hopefully it's changing. I think, uh, you know, I, I look around the people I work with and it's a it's a very diverse and young, increasingly young group of people. This is a little bit kind of touches what I was on, on what I was saying earlier about not just, you know, deciding that a whole generation of people are no longer valuable because we've woken up to other groups that need to have a voice. And I would be really worried if if we just decided to throw away lots of people's experience in, in the hope of trying to readdress balances. I mean, we've, of course, that has to happen. But, you know, I think we're in danger of losing a lot of good people for that. But the difference, I think, between the UK and the US is, I mean, in terms of diversity, for instance, on screen, journalism in the US is, journalism in the US is a lot more um, it's a lot more professionalized than it is in the UK. Journalism in the UK is tends to be viewed as a kind of a vocation as much as it is a profession. Everybody I work with in America, however, pretty much has a, some kind of journalism degree. And at a network, they probably would have gone to Columbia or somewhere similar. So it's very, the, the bar is high. But what that means is, and then you've got good journalism schools across the United States. So that means you end up with quite a diverse pool of young people who are very highly qualified from all sorts of different backgrounds, getting into journalism and trained properly as journalists. So ABC, for example, has an incredibly diverse, very, very, very good pool of correspondents, on-air people, who I would say actually um, are better than, I mean, loads, loads better than me. I mean, incredibly good. And so, it, and that's because it, there's an equal playing field from the beginning because there's a there's a professionalization of journalism whereas in Britain because it's a vo- it can also be a vocation you get people who have means who go into journalism who and so you end up with a white privileged kind of core 
because a lot of other people don't have the means to not be paid uh, or at least be paid very badly at the beginning. And so then what happens is they'll look around for people to fill gaps and fill diversity quotas. And that's the wrong way around. It has to start from the bottom. People, Everyone needs a chance to get a proper degree and a proper education in journalism. And that's, I think, the big difference. That said, among management in the United States and executive positions, they still have a big issue with diversity just like we do. But I would say on air in the United States, it's a lot better than the UK. Well, that's encouraging. I mean, I was I was talking a couple of a couple of weeks ago to a political journalist for the the podcast, and he was saying he works in the lobby in London, and he was just saying that about it's probably about under five out of a hundred journalists that he sees regularly um, are, are anything other than white, which is which is really yeah, it's it's a real shame that it's not moving faster. But I think Westminster is its is its own sort of bubble in its in its own way. Yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, journalists I follow anyway, there's a lot of very diverse young journalists, not necessarily non-white, but they're very definitely not privileged. There are like working class white background journalists working really hard at the moment in the pool and you see them as political correspondents. So yeah, diversity in that sense needs to be Needs, needs to come needs to come further forward. I don't know enough about UK print journalism to know whether or not it's it's going in the right direction, but I hope it is. Um, and if you if you could have your time again, would you still choose the same industry, or would you would you go to acting, or would you go would you want to become a lawyer instead? I yeah, I would try to be an actor. I think presumably I would know that I did this, and I could go. Oh, I could try something else now, and uh, be an actor. Well, I'd try anyway. Nice. Do you think um, TV is as glamorous as people outside the industry think it is? No, I hope they don't think it is. I mean, it isn't at all. I mean, it's one of my enduring, probably one of my low points. I remember I was outside Great Ormond Street Hospital. And do you remember that's a very sad story about Charlie Gard? And um, in the United States, there was a lot of interest on it. So I was covering it. But anyway, it was midnight or something. And I'm sitting on a pavement like and I've forgotten my makeup well I had a bit of makeup but I had forgotten half of it and uh, I'm sitting there it's midnight I have a a gym sock from my bag which is the only thing that I could use a used gym sock sort of padding my foundation desperate to just put a bit in and I look up and I hear giggling and there are these three mums sitting on the steps having a fag obviously poor things they're dealing with really really difficult things inside and they were all laughing at me and i said look you know if i've if i've made your day a little bit better then i'm i'm glad i'm glad to have helped but this is tragic <laughs> and they were laughing that is the reality i mean it's not it i suppose there's a level of glamour in the sense that like sometimes you're in far-flung places and the, some of the travel can be quite good but no I don't do it for the glamour it's the excitement and the unpredictability not knowing what you're going to be doing next is actually quite fun Um, most people will tell you if they don't like their job it's because they're bored of it and boredom generally comes from predictability and this job is not predictable so it can't be boring and that's quite good Mm. and if you think of like a I know this is pretty a a difficult question but because there is no typical month but in a typical month how many days are you out on shoots and on with work and how many days are you actually home so this year has been a bit weird last year I looked at it uh it was 50 50 so two weeks of the month uh and actually last year was two weeks of the month I was out of the country but then it's just it's feast or famine you know today I've had a day at home. I just went late. I went to lie down in Primrose Hill. I read a book. It's been lovely. But the last 12 days, I've been on air every single day, often until midnight, doing the coverage for Prince Philip's funeral. So literally one day you're doing, you're working every hour and the next day you're not working any hours and you're just trying to catch up on sleep. So yeah, difficult to predict. And how was, how was um, covering the, the funeral of the Prince Philip's funeral? It was, it was, yeah, it was very moving. I mean, it was, uh, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because Americans, they've got a funny relationship with royalty. They're obsessed by it, but they've misunderstood it as a celeb- as celebrity. And um, when actually royalty is the opposite of celebrity, because you're born into it, and, and actually a lot of them don't like it. Whereas celebrity, you're desperate to become a celebrity, 
and it's fame for fame's sake. So literally, they, op- they, they exist at opposite ends of the spectrum, if you think about it. Um, but they all think it is. So, um, And then the whole Megan thing has been huge, obviously. But covering the fi- Philip was, uh, was a great was a great honor because he reminded me a lot of my grandfather um the moment in the in the in the church where you know uh, the the national anthem was sung for the queen that was very moving uh nimrod is one of my favorite pieces of music so listening to that being played in the quadrangle first yeah there's there's a there's a part of it which makes you feel very proud to be british and then i can play up to that whole kind of i'm your british correspondent and you know everything i say is is law so yeah it was it was quite a thing i mean but again these days you do get a lot of this kind of when are you gonna when are you going to report that Prince Philip was a racist, and you're just like oh. so dealing with this kind of binary view of the world is can be a little bit um, a little bit difficult, uh, but you just got to do your best, balanced and impartial as you can be. I think that yeah, it's that moment when the the bagpipers started playing. I think that was the most sort of meaningful for me watching back. <laughs> It's just, yeah, it sort of struck. And then you see the Queen sort of walking away, just very small and just sort of very hunched over. You just think, wow. Well, you're just feeling... I mean, the thing for me, royal or not royal, I mean, I'm not bothered either way, but the idea that a couple have been together for 73 years and she's lost him, I think that's... You can't help but be a bit moved about it. Um, And last question. If you could distill all the advice that you've been talking about today for a newbie um, to the industry, thinking thinking that this might be the industry for them into a sentence or two, what would that be? God. Um, Try and do something yourself which is original. Don't spend lots of money on doing it. Ask as many people as you can for advice. That's how all of us got here. The number of coffees I had with people... I could open a coffee shop. So just try and be original and do it yourself. You don't need to go and spend lots of money on expensive courses. Yeah, yeah, be self-starting, I think. Brilliant. James Longman, thank you very much. Thanks very much. That was rather interesting and edifying conversation. I was very pleased. I hope you enjoyed that interview with foreign correspondent James Longman. If you'd like to hear more episodes from this series, search for us on Apple or Spotify. Next week's guest is criminal barrister Mohsen Zaidi. So What Do You Do is an ampersand speech production.